It's good to see uh, new and returning faces today. I know that some of you have been a part of all of our series on the conscience. Some of you may need a little review. So just by way of quick reminder, we have been doing a series on the conscience. And we define the conscience, your inner impulse to do what you believe you should do. Your conscience is your inner impulse to do what you should do. And we've been studying it. There are different kinds of consciences based on the things we intend to do or not do or what we do or what we don't do. Our conscience registers. For some reason, I think it's like a machine that just spits out a report. And sometimes the report is good. Sometimes it is not. So we have gone through what the conscience is, how it works, and different states of the conscience. Because God intends for us to have a certain kind of conscience. Today, I want us to consider a number of passages that are going to speak to this topic. A guilty conscience cleared. A guilty conscience cleared. Proverbs 28.13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you today, we pray for the preaching of the word in this place, around the United States of America and around the globe. We pray that on your day, your word would be preached. We pray that the philosophies of man would not be preached, that you would stay the words of preachers around the globe, keep them from saying what you have not said. Make them faithful to say what you have said. Whether it is a word that is easy to say, a word that is hard to say, may they honor you by preaching your word. Father, we ask as the word is preached that we would have receptive hearts. Help us not to have hard hearts as the people of Israel did, as Pharaoh had a hard heart to your word. But Father, help us to be receptive even as Jesus Christ was receptive as he was taught by you from day to day. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. My son, who's in fifth grade, is learning about sewing in his art class. Now, when I think of my history with sewing, I didn't learn sewing until home ec in seventh grade. But our discussion together this last week led us to the first reference to sewing in the Bible. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, that sowing was employed because Adam and Eve felt guilty because of what they had done. They had eaten the forbidden fruit, and therefore their consciences were alarmed within them. They were guilty, and they were experiencing for the very first time what mankind has experienced since. They had a guilty conscience. Now, in the course of our study which you can see on the screen, we now come to a very pivotal matter. As believers, we have already had our evil consciences cleansed. We've already seen that through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we may be cleansed of an evil conscience, a conscience that has evil laying upon it, and a conscience that condemns us because of the sin against us. Because we've been saved, because we have been converted, 
An evil conscience has been cleansed. And now we have within us the desire to do what we ought to do because God dwells in our hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we learn from God's Word. We learn how to apply God's Word. And as we do so, we have a good conscience, which is essential for developing Christian love. And so we ought to strive to have a good conscience. And one of the types of good consciences that is available to us is a clear conscience. That's what we studied last time in Acts chapter 24, where Paul said, I always strive to maintain a clear conscience. A clear conscience is one that detects no faults. It's a conscience that registers that you're doing what you ought to be doing. That's the kind of conscience we want. But we know that we don't always do what we should do. And when we do what we shouldn't do, when we don't do what we ought to do, our conscience registers guilty. So today we come to a guilty conscience. And our great question we'll try to answer is, what should you do when you have a guilty conscience? What do you do when you have a guilty conscience? Well, you should clear your conscience by confessing your sin. That is the biblical way to regain a clear conscience. Two simple points this morning. First, a guilty conscience comes from unconfessed sin. A guilty conscience comes from unconfessed sin. Remember how the conscience works. It works based upon knowledge. Your conscience knows things. It knows about the work of the law within you. It knows what you think. It knows what you do. It knows what you learn from outside of yourself, whether it's from the Scriptures or from elsewhere. Your conscience works based on knowledge. And when it works, it either sides with you or against you. It is for or against. There is no shades of gray when it comes to the conscience. The conscience is black or white. So consider what happens when you as a believer sin. What does the conscience do? Well, your conscience accuses you for your unconfessed sin. You know, the sobering truth is that you still sin even though you've been saved from sin. Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 7, verse 19. Paul said, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, that truth is something that is surprising to someone who has newly been converted. It's something that's sobering to the rest who have been converted. A young person who trusts in Jesus Christ to forgive him of his sin, he finds himself surprised when he sins because he thinks, well, if I ask Jesus to forgive me for my sin, why am I sinning again? Something must have been wrong with the first time I tried. So that person asks Jesus Christ to save him again, to forgive him again. Now, that reaction to seek forgiveness is correct for the new convert. But the impulse to be converted again isn't correct. Here's why. When you're saved, you become a child of God. And you become permanently a part of the family of God. So when you sin, you don't stop being a child of God, but instead your conscience turns against you because you've sinned against your heavenly Father. So young people who have professed faith in Christ, when you sin again, you don't need to 
ask for God's forgiveness so you become part of this family again. You're already part of his family. What you find when you sin is that your heart condemns you. That's what the Apostle John taught in his first letter, using the term heart. He says that your heart condemns you, and he's talking about that in reference to your conscience. He is teaching that it is possible for a believer to have a guilty conscience. Now, wait a second. Isn't there a popular Christian song that reads this way? No guilt in life, no fear in death. See, I know that song. Well, did you know that some Christians believe that since they have been completely forgiven by Jesus Christ, they never have to confess sin ever again in their life? They never have to feel sorry for their sin because they're completely forgiven. They say, I'm under the blood. I already asked forgiveness when I was converted. I never have to again. No guilt in life. But is that right? Can a Christian have a guilty conscience? Or is a guilty conscience only part of the pre-conversion period? Well, let's let the Bible give us the answer. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll turn to a passage that most of us could quote. Because we read it basically every month. Can a Christian have a guilty conscience? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be, what's the word? Guilty. You see, Christians can be guilty because of sin. A Christian can have a guilty conscience. He can sense that he is out of fellowship with God. He can sense that he's living contrary to God's word. So a Christian can have a conscience that accuses him. And the conscience goes beyond accusing. The conscience bothers you when you have unconfessed sin. I want you to consider how you might act when your conscience is bothering you. We can go through a lot of examples in the Scripture. I just have five categories here. But just think of how people responded when they had a guilty conscience. If you have a guilty conscience, you may hide. Adam and Eve tried to hide amongst the trees in the garden, from the presence of the Lord, that's in the first pages of Scripture. Or think about Moses, who had to look both ways before he struck down the Egyptian in Exodus chapter 2. Or think about Christians who avoid gathering with God's people because they're ashamed of their sin and they don't want anyone to know about it. That's what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 3 and chapter 10. People who have a guilty conscience want to hide. So, When you want to hide, when you feel you have to sneak, when you feel you have to look both ways, when you forsake gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps you have a guilty conscience. Because a guilty conscience prefers isolation. It hides. So if you have a guilty conscience, you may hide. You may also get hot. What do I mean when I say that? Well, When God didn't accept Cain's offering, how did Cain respond? He was enraged. He got mad. And when Stephen preached to the Jews about crucifying Christ and the fact that they had stoned the prophets throughout their generations, how did the Jews respond? They were enraged and they picked up stones themselves. 
fulfilling what he had even said about them. So when you have a guilty conscience, you may get hot and lash out. Or you may feel helpless. Consider Judas, who once he saw that Jesus was condemned, he looked for a rope. And indeed, he was not the first or the last to do the same kind of thing. You may hide, you may get hot, you may become hopeless. Your heart may ache. You know, when David sinned, when David cut the corner of the robe of King Saul, when David numbered the people, the Bible tells us that his heart struck him. It's as if a guilty conscience carries a club. And that, that's, that's the wording of the text. It smote him. And David sinned with Bathsheba, and he records the way he felt when he sinned. And I'm going to read through a lot of passages, and I encourage you to actually walk through them with me. Turn to Psalm 31. Turn to Psalm 31, and I'm not going to give commentary on these. I just want the words of Scripture to fall on your heart. Psalm 31.10. This is David's testimony. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Turn the page to Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 38, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. Psalm 38. Lord, your arrows have sunk into me. Your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. And turn to chapter 40, verse 12. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. That is the torture of a guilty conscience. And when you're in that kind of place, you should look for help. That's what David did. Read the next verse in Psalm 40. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. See, that's how the Jews responded who heard Peter accuse them of crucifying the Messiah on Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 37, when they had heard these words, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? We need help. You see, a guilty conscience ought to drive a Christian to Christ. We read it this morning in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, with the Lord, there's mercy for the Christian with a guilty conscience. There is abounding grace, not in the commission of sin, but in the confession of sin. 
So a clear conscience comes from confessing sin. A guilty conscience comes from unconfessed sin. And a clear conscience comes from confessing sin. Say, what's the confession of sin? The confession of sin is your admission to God of your sin against God. Now, for those of you who grew up Catholic, this might sound a little bit different than what you remember. To you, confession was going to a little room at the church and saying something like this to the priest. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. And then you would give a list of sins. And then he would respond with an assignment of so many Hail Marys or Our Fathers, and then he would absolve you of your sin. And to many people, that is religious confession. Now, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. So we don't believe in that function of the priest. We do not teach that kind of confession, but there are aspects of it that are valuable. Have you discerned them? Because they are scriptural. Confession requires examining yourself. And from what I understand, those who would go to Catholic confession would be encouraged beforehand to examine themselves. They have lists of how you're supposed to prep for a good confession. Are we supposed to examine ourselves? Peter makes it plain, or Paul made it plain. Paul gave instruction to the Corinthian church when they were observing the Lord's Supper. He said this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood and body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. Examining yourself is biblical. I've told you before that church like other historical Baptist churches, had what is called a covenant meeting. A specific meeting of God's people the day before the Lord's Supper. And at that covenant meeting, they would humble themselves and examine how they would treat one another. They would review their church covenant. Sin would be dealt with. People would seek forgiveness. Non-attenders would be sought out. The church would do business with God. That's how things used to be across the board in churches right where our feet are. In our day, we always have a moment of silence for private prayer before the Lord's Supper is observed. That's what you're used to. There is always a time for self-examination. Of course, when you compare the two, what we do today seems really small compared to that. But regardless... Self-examination is essential. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, I would interpret that to be the local church, that body, whoever does, does not discern his brothers and sisters in the Lord, his relationship with them, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. So Paul's instruction is examine yourself. And that's David's example. In his prayer of self-examination, Psalm 138, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. When I was in seminary, there was a forum 
where all of our uh, professors were up in the front, sat behind a table, and they answered questions. And one of my favorite professors who taught church history answered a question where he described his private prayer in his devotion time. And among other things, this is one of the things that he would ask God in his private prayer. He'd simply say to the Lord, Lord, is everything good between us? And I remember hearing him say that and thinking, what a humble thing. A man who is a scholar through and through, and in his quiet time, he asked the Lord, Lord, is everything good between us? And I was challenged whether or not I was humble enough to ask God the same question. Another way that you can examine yourself from today is to use your Scripture reading as part of your prayer time. So when you read through the Scriptures, notice what the passage commends, what it recommends to you. Or notice what the passage condemns, what it tells you you ought not to do. And then take that, what it says, and make it part of your self-examination. So remember what, what David just prayed when he asked God to search him? So you could pray something like this if you read Psalm 139. You could pray, Lord, I haven't been open before you like David was. I haven't been very careful about sin in my life, nor have I asked for your help to search it out. I haven't asked for your guidance. I've really just been on cruise control. You say you can take what you learn in the Scriptures and immediately put it into your prayer. And to help you learn how to examine yourself. And when you do examine yourself, you see your sin. You see it. And confession requires not only examining yourself, confession requires exposing your sin. Again, let's look at what David said. Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, speaking to the Lord. I did not cover my iniquity. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whosoever covers his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will obtain mercy. It was uh, July 8th, 1997, where a 13-year-old boy was seated in a preaching service at a Christian summer camp. There was an evangelist that day who preached from Psalm 38, verse 18. And that verse says this, For I will declare my iniquities, I will be sorry for my sin. And the evangelist asked that group of teenagers seated there, Have you ever really been sorry for your sin? And he got them thinking about, their home life, the week just before they came to camp. What was it like? So often, isn't it the case that children follow their parents' rules only when their parents are are around? You see, for so many young people, they don't want to do what mom and dad have said. They only choose to do what they say when they're around. And is it possible to be a child who goes through your life slumped over, dragging your feet, pouting, because you really don't want to listen? You say, that is not an enjoyable you know, experience to live through. I get it. It is not fun for the child. It's not fun for mom and dad. But the more important issue is this. 
is the child going to get on the right side of sin? You see, young people, you can live a life where you cover your sin, where you sneak around to do things. And if you do that, you won't prosper. Or you can get on the other side of sin and confess it like David did. And when you do that, you'll obtain mercy as David did. A decision that even a young person should face. I say it's a decision. It's something very hard. Admitting your sin to God is not easy. Most people don't want to think about their sin at all, let alone lay it out before God. Many people try to appease their guilty conscience by many other means. Let's think about how people deal with it. People, when they've done wrong, when they know they're wrong, they often respond by trying to kind of balance things out by doing right. So all of a sudden you'll find someone who you know they sin, you find them doing lots and lots of good things. Why? Because they have guilty conscience and they're hoping if I do enough good, it'll outweigh the bad and my conscience will go quiet again. That's what I hope. Of course, that's not how the conscience works. But that's what people try when they get a guilty conscience. Other people silence the conscience by condemning the sins of others. Let's take note of this. Remember the Pharisee who prayed that Jesus talked about? This is what the Pharisee prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. If you write write in your Bible, underline that. Not like other men. That's the key. I'm so glad I'm not like him. For example, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, if we take the same verse and make it modern, we might say this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Abortionists, alcoholics, atheists, Democrats, socialists, pro-vaccine, pro-CNN. I thank God I'm not like that. And what makes that kind of thing worse today is the public nature of the statements. You know, back in the temple, the Pharisee who prayed like that, only the people who were within earshot could hear him say that. But a couple hundred years ago, here in Waterville, Joseph Tenney, who was the editor of the local paper, this is the early 1800s here in town, he published in the paper his disapproval of fellow churchmen. It seems that some other churchmen had changed their stance on dancing. Don't know if it was square dancing or the waltz, I don't know. But they left the church, and Tenney decided to publish in the local paper a scathing statement against them. It was like the minutes a church would have of church discipline, but without any mercy. Right in the public paper for everyone to see. And could you imagine there being a problem in a church and then reading about it in the local paper? You might say, well, that seems out of place. But people do that all the time today. Have you been on the internet? Because of social media, people condemn the sins of other people every single day with a far greater circulation than your local paper. And in my opinion, this type of I'm not like other men has become the norm, even among professing Christians. Now, there's a more subtle way to do this. There's a more subtle way to silence the conscience 
by condemning the sins of others. And it's by confessing the sins of others. Listen for a second. This other person prays like this. God, forgive us for our systemic racism, for our oppressive patriarchy, for our exploitation, for our free market, for our white privilege, for our unvaccinated. You see, in this same way, you're condemning the other people, but just doing it in the form of confession. And perhaps Christians have learned to do this from preaching. You don't realize that it is possible for a preacher to preach in a way that targets people outside the church. It's possible to preach against the sins of society and get a lot of amens, especially if you're in the South where they amen in church. It's possible to preach, we're against abortion, amen. We're against adultery, amen. We're against systemic racism, amen. And the preacher preaches in such a way that what he does is always make this sharp divide between us and them, us and them. They're always the enemy. And everyone here is just ready to say, oh, amen, pastor. But what it is doing is making the pulpit a Baptist, Fox News, or CNN, where there's just this division, us and them, us and them, us and them. You say, why do people condemn the sins of others? Well, when you're so busy condemning everyone else, you don't seem to find any time to condemn anything about yourself. There's the point. David said, I will declare my iniquities. I will be sorry for my sins. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, how long has it been since your last confession? Is confession part of your private devotions? Is it part of your public observance of the Lord's Supper? Because confession is necessary if you're going to be rid of a guilty conscience. Because God's forgiveness upon our confession clears the conscience. God is going to forgive you when you confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So a Christian who continually confesses his sin will find forgiveness for his sin because we continually sin and therefore we continually need to confess it. And when we do so, God releases us from the guilt of that sin. Remember Jesus taught us how to pray? He said that we should pray, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, Luke eleven four. And it was David who sang this, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, when there's confession, when there's forgiveness from God, that changes everything with our conscience. God cleanses us so that our conscience is clear. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. The conscience works based on knowledge. And when the conscience registers, you've done wrong, guilty conscience. But then when it registers, you've confessed it to God. God has forgiven you. Your conscience resets. And it's clear. You've sinned. I've sinned. But when we confess, God forgives us our sins and our consciences are cleared. When Adam and Eve sinned, they took up sowing and hid because they had a guilty conscience. 
The good news is that God provides a way to be rid of a guilty conscience, and it's through the confession of sin. So the guilt in life can be remedied by God's grace, which abounds when we confess our sin. Father, we ask that you would make us very serious about our sin. Keep us from the mentality of our age, which spends all of its time pointing at someone else and condemning someone else, but is unwilling to point within, unwilling to do business with you in public or in private. Father, we ask that you would work this in our hearts, work it into our daily life, our corporate worship, that we would be uniquely different, that we would be the kind of people who deal with our guilty consciences in the way that you ask and you advise us to do so. And Lord, may we enjoy that wonderful sense of a clean heart, of a renewed spirit, as the psalmist prayed for. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.